Hey, welcome back to the FDIC podcast, where we talk about our banks, the banking system, and why it all matters to the very people who use banks, and even to those who don't, the unbanked. I'm Brian Sullivan with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and today we sit down for a final time with the FDIC's departing chairman, Yelena McWilliams. Chairman McWilliams was sworn in as the 21st chairman of the FDIC on June 5th of 2018, and in her time as chairman, led this agency during an unprecedented moment in our nation's history. Madam Chairman, welcome back. Thank you so much, Brian. And it's uh, bittersweet as I think about the podcast series we created. It was my brainchild. I said, let's elevate our social presence. Let's teach people about what the FDIC does. And then you took it to a whole new level. So I'm so proud of you and thank oh, you for having me. Well, you're generous. Let's let's walk down memory lane and, and look at your years here. I have to imagine that every one of those 20 prior chairmen of the FDIC encountered some challenge that was unique to their time. But is it safe to say that your time sitting in that chair was unlike any other? It truly was unlike any other, and here's why. FDIC was born out of a crisis back in 1933 in the aftermath of the Great Depression. And I, I quite often say our brand is crisis. Why? Because we are there to resolve banks when banks start failing, even if it happens en masse as it did in 2008, 9, 10. And so we have had prior chairman of the FDIC who had to deal with bank closures uh, and bank failures uh, in hundreds of banks per year. Um, but we have never had a pandemic of these proportions on our hands. Actually, we've never dealt with a, with a pandemic that shut down the entire economy of the United States. And when you think of that, um, I think my uh, sitting at the helm of the FDIC throughout all of that and making sure that not only we do not have the repeat of the 2008 and bank failures and that the system can continue to function and that consumers have access to credit and capital, um, but on top of that, to keep our employees safe as we have to examine banks and even close banks, like that has been really unprecedented. Now, one of the most important missions of a place like the FDIC is to make sure that our banks are safe and sound. And through all, everything we've been through in this pandemic and continue to go through, is the banking system safe and sound? The banking system is currently safe and sound. And I have to say currently because it can change. But I can tell you that banks have weathered uh, the pandemic incredibly well. They are actually, uh, many banks have higher levels of capital and liquidity than when I came to office in 2018. And to think the, about the, the shock to the economy that we all withstood, including the banking system in 2020, if you remember at the onset of the pandemic and the business closures, there was about a one-third uh, drop in an annualized GDP rate in the second quarter of 2020. And so when you think about that, such a shock to the economy has not been felt um, well, I'm not going to misspeak, but I know they started keeping record keeping about uh, the, the gross domestic product since 1948 or 46. And I don't think we have had that type of a crisis and a drop in GDP since then. Uh, so to think about what the banks had to do and how well they weathered the storm. And not only did they weather the storm well, not only are they well capitalized with ample levels of liquidity, uh, but we didn't have a single bank fail during the pandemic. And the banking system served as the, as the, as the bedrock. It served as the very foundation of recovery throughout the economy. Can we talk about regulation and supervision? Um, you know, there's always 
been a debate over you know how to regulate, whether to regulate, how much to regulate. Uh, the Great Recession of 2008 that you just pointed to and the years that followed saw a lot of regulation in the banking sector. Uh, your time at the FDIC was also quite active. How would you like people to remember your approach to regulating and supervising our banks? So I think there is a healthy balance that has to be achieved between where our regulatory system kind of a kicks in and where the health of the economy is considered. And the reason I say this is because uh, you want to strike that balance, balance, and it's a very delicate balance. And I wish there were a magic formula that would tell you this is the right amount of, of regulation, right? But quite often, um, you don't even know where that right amount is. Why? Because there are sometimes collateral consequences that you don't even understand beforehand. So we engage in extensive rulemakings when we promulgate regulations at the FDIC with a view of let's solicit as many comments as we can from the public and, and the stakeholders to understand what the effect of regulations is going to be. So when I look over the last uh, three and a half years of my chairmanship at the FDIC, I would say that I hope people remember how quickly we jumped into making sure in, 2000, in 2020 into making sure that banks can remain open and help their customers. Uh, immediately when the business closures happened in March of 2020, I started calling big bank CEOs, our big bank, which are smaller than most of the banks regulated by the OCC. Uh, but I started calling them and I basically said, I said, are you working with your customers? We need consumers to stay in, in their homes. We can't have a repeat of 2008. What, what's happening on the ground? And inevitably, they told us that they were trying to work with their customers already. They were calling their customers and they knew that modifying loans, mortgages in particular, for people who lost jobs because of the government shutdowns um, uh, related to COVID uh, pandemic, that uh, they were working with those borrowers, but they were concerned, the banks were concerned, that modifying such loans would be considered impaired debt. It's called, uh, the technical term is troubled debt restructuring, TDR, under the uh, gap accounting rules. In and the that States. would adversely affect It their... would adversely affect because our examiners do look at TDRs uh, and impaired debt on the bank's books to assess how safe and sound is this bank. You don't want to have too many so-called bad loans or troubled loans right. or impaired loans on the books. And so what, what I did at that point in time, I was thinking, well, how can we make sure we prevent this? We want people to stay in their homes. And gosh darn it, they're going to stay in their homes. We're not going to allow the foreclosures to happen from back in 2008, 9, 10, when people didn't even know where to send their loan modification documents. I worked as a staff attorney at the Federal Reserve at that time, and I remember getting calls and getting letters from consumers who literally didn't know where to send documents to request loan modifications. And by the time they got to the right address, their home was being foreclosed on. So one of the things we did early on was make sure, um, I, you know, we called over to uh, FASB, Financial Accounting Standards Board, and asked them, hey, listen, we're going to go public by with saying that you need to do something to make sure that these loan modifications take place and are not classified as impaired debt. And we worked with them, and one of the early wins in the pandemic was to allow banks to modify loans in agreement with FASB and not have these modifications be considered TDR, trouble debt restructuring, if those loans were performing before the pandemic. So when you think about regulation, you know, we issue rules, guidances, we issue a lot of, you know, legal documents that, you know, sometimes you need 300 pages to read and, yeah. and a lot of hours. But sometimes it's as simple as making phone calls and making sure that the right outcome 
for consumers happens. And that's exactly what took place here. So I, I would say that you have to be, as a regulator, you have to be agile. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to admit that maybe the regulation we did two years ago in the current setting, in the current cir- circumstances, should not be applicable or maybe should be suspended for X period of time because we're experiencing a crisis. And that's what we did. Some have uh, referred to you as the innovation chairman. Uh, You established a centralized office of innovation at the FDIC. You you created a tech lab uh, in that office called FDI Tech. Why is innovation so important to you? It's important to me on a personal level, frankly. I started out as an attorney, professionally, as an attorney in Silicon Valley. And I remember working with uh, early stage companies in the early 2000s and trying to figure out how to fit their new business models into the existing Securities uh, and Exchange Commission regulations and how difficult it was to work with the laws from 1933 and 1934 to accommodate these new business models that I saw firsthand were improving people's lives and and uh, just, just the mode of, of of living. And so when I came to the FDIC, I also remembered my story of having come to the United States as, as a young immigrant. I was 18 years old, um, had no family here. I came by myself uh, with two suitcases and $500 that my parents had to borrow and not being able to get a credit card and how difficult at that point in time it was for me to access any type of credit, including credit card debt. Uh, and I needed it so desperately as I as I would work minimum wage jobs and I would be left with 20 to 25 dollars a month for food, which even back in 91 did not buy you 92 didn't buy you a lot of food. And so when I thought about that, I was thinking, well, look at what some of these uh, fintechs and some of the banks are able to do. They're able to use algorithms, machine learning, artificial intelligence to predict how people like me 30 years ago would pay their bills. And me now and me 30 years ago had one thing in common, uh, and it was that we paid my bills on time. In both versions of me paid my bills on time. And so had those uh, technologies been available back then, somebody like me, a new immigrant to this country who was cleaning houses for $5 an hour and you know selling Cutco knives door to door and working closing, closing shift at Blockbuster at 425 and still couldn't make ends meet, would have had access to credit. And so when you think about that, it's not just about innovation because it's, it's in vogue and people talk about it and it's, you know, the, the greatest and the latest development. It's really because it matters for people who um, need to be banked, who don't have other channels of access in credit or capital, and how far technology can go to predict the ability of such people to repay. You've talked about it being democratizing the banking system. Yes, democratizing finance. And it's absolutely democratizing finance. Uh, You know, I have seen some of these technology companies being able to offer 720 and and above credit score quality of credit to people in the 600 bracket, and in some cases even dipping below 600. The the people in the 520 and above bracket, they were not basically, as of seven, eight, ten years ago, they weren't able to get uh, almost any kind of credit. They had to rely on on pawn shops and payday lending, et cetera, et cetera, because they couldn't get bank credit. Mm -hmm. And now we have an ability for banks to partner with these fintechs who have the most innovative algorithms and models that look into the person's ability to pay based on their utility bills, payment of the utility bills, uh, cell phone payments, et cetera. Rent payments. Rent payments, correct. Something that's actually not the type of credit and wouldn't be reported to the credit bureaus. And they're able to take a look at that and absorb all of that information, analyze it, and say, hey, listen, this person may be poor. This person may be very new in the United States. This person may be new to our to, to economy because they only had a job for six months. 
but they pay their bills. Right, and they right, pay right. it always on time. They pay it five days early and to offer them credit. Right. Well, given how most people bank these days, which is to say on their mobile device and, and computers, are you confident that as, as you leave the FDIC, the banking sector is keeping pace with all this change or lagging behind it? Um, I think there is always going to be a little bit of a lag. And you see banks, um, very large banks like J.P. Morgan, tr- invest billions of dollars into innovation and technology. Why? Because they understand they have to keep up with the fintechs and technology companies that are competing in the banking space, even when they're not insured depository institutions. So I think you're going to see more and more traditional banks understand the the ability uh, of, of technology to procure new customers, to proca- procure better uh, uh, compliance systems. You know, JPMs happens to be on, on the forefront of that for the banking industry, but I think a lot of other banks don't have the scale uh, and the size of JPM, they don't have the, the resources. And so as, as you think about what, what can they do is allowing these third-party uh, partnerships between banks and non-banks, fintechs in particular, that would bring the technology to the bank that doesn't have a lot of resources like some of the largest banks right. in the United States, and yet be able to use some of the same technology that those banks are developing. Let's talk about a certain kind of bank. We call them minority depository institutions. You've called these banks mission-driven banks uh, because they work and lend in communities where there may not be, there probably wouldn't be a bank if not for these banks. And yet we continue to see a decline in their numbers. That's troubling, isn't it? It is troubling, and here's why. Uh, The so-called MDIs, minority depository institutions, and, and I think it's just easier to call them mission-driven banks, um, serve communities that have traditionally not been served well by the banking system. And we're talking about uh, African-American communities, rural communities, immigrant communities, Native American, Hispanic, Asian, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you can have different subgroupings of, of the mission-driven banks based on the nature of the community that they serve. And it is absolutely essential that regulatory agencies like the FDIC work hard on figuring out how to understand that business model, how to best accommodate that business model in our regulation and supervision, and how to enable those institutions to grow so that they are able to effectively compete with non-MDIs, non-minority depository institutions that function in regular, you know, uh, uh, consumer um, uh, corners. So they would, you know, we're talking about large banks and their branches, et cetera. And so as we look at, at MDIs, we understand that, for example, in African-American banks, the the average size of the deposit is very low, you know, and I forgot what the number was, but it was in the in the probably twenty, thirty, forty dollar range. And when you have, and that's your average deposit. So when that's your average deposit, you're looking at uh, a very high cost to service that account on a per deposit amount basis yep. compared to some of the other banks, because you have to do the same stuff on a regulatory side as you do for much larger banks if you're if you're uh, an MDI and you have a $20 deposit. So when when we when we look at all of that and we see the challenges that these banks face, we understand that they a uh, they need capital, b they need a more bespoke way of being regulated and supervised by us, recognizing the nature of their communities and their business model to accommodate those communities, and c recognizing the importance that they hold for the communities where they serve. They're not just a bank. Well, then you went and did something that nobody thought you could do by creating a mission-driven bank fund. And what is a public agency like the FDIC getting into that business for? But 
Tell us a little bit about that. That was one of your legacy moments. It, it was. It was. I um, After I have met with uh, a number of MDI CEOs and asked them to teach me about their business model, their communities, I never assume to, to understand what it's like to walk in other person's shoes. So usually when I meet somebody, I say, tell me your story. Everybody has a story to tell, but not everybody's a good storyteller. Tell me your best story. You know, what do you do? How did you get here? And uh, when you talk to people and they actually open up, you start to understand how they got into the business of banking, why, who they're trying to serve, and 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 how. And so what I what I when I learned how difficult it is for some of these MDIs to function in their communities. Uh, especially for African American MDIs, I figured out we need to we need to think outside the box. Everything we've done thus far has not been sufficient, and not only sufficient to satisfy our requirements under the law, but sufficient for these banks to truly compete, uh, not just in their communities, but with non-MDIs. And I was flying back from a conference, I believe, in Texas. I was someplace over the middle of America, uh, and I remember vividly it was a middle row government rate seat. So I was all the way in the back of the plane. Uh, and uh, I think people need to remember that when you're in the middle seat, you get both armrests, but neither of my co-passengers uh, understood that. So I was kind of a squished in the middle seat looking at uh, looking at the screen in front of me, and it was direct TV. And I remembered uh, an episode of Shark Tank came up, and I was kind of a mesmerized. And I thought, well, why don't we create a Shark Tank for minority banks? And when I landed, I called up my chief of staff, and I said, we need a shark tank for minority banks. And I was told it can't be done. I was told there is no, um, it's, it's questionable under what authority. I was told we don't know exactly how to structure this thing. And I said, you know what? We have 400 lawyers at the FDIC. And if one of those lawyers can figure out how this, this should be done, We'll get another 400 lawyers, and somebody will figure out how this should be done. Well, somebody figured it out because now we do have a mission-driven bank fund, but it's not a fund that the FDIC capitalized. It's a public— Correct. We created a public-private partnership, yes, and we created so-called mission-driven bank fund. Uh, that is uh, that was only uh, partially set up by the FDIC, uh, but it's it's run by private investors. We're very grateful that Discovery, um, actually it was first Microsoft came to us and said, how can we help? And we, we told them about the idea of a mission-driven bank fund, and it was early in its inception and creation of this fund, and they said, how can we help? And then Truist Financial came next, and then Discover came, uh, Discover Channel uh, came, came uh, Discovery Channel came next, and, and so we are now at a position where we have about $120 million committed from these three institutions, and this fund will be leveraged 1 to 10. So for each dollar in capital that comes to this fund, there will be about $10 of lending in communities where uh, minority depository institutions and community development financial institutions serve. So that's about over a billion dollars worth of of lending in those communities just through these three investors in the fund. You're proud of that. I am very proud of that. I, you know what? I'm proud of the FDIC. We had to think outside the box, and we did. Mm-hmm. And here we have this fund that people said couldn't be done. Well, let's let's talk more broadly about uh, about this. You know, we hear a lot about the need to uh, build a more diverse, uh, equitable, inclusive, accessible. A banking system. In fact, these words are being uh, discussed broadly across the entire fabric of American life. Um, when it comes to these principles, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, um, is the FDIC itself a different place than it was three and a half years ago when you first came? It is. It is. And when I look back, that may be um, 
my proudest achievement at the FDIC, changing the culture. And I was told when I came to the FDIC that it's, a, it's an agency that has been forged over many decades, since 1933, and there's a lot of history, and the culture is impenetrable. I won't be able to change the culture. And what I encountered was an agency where culture needed changing. Um, and so that took a lot of listening and understanding. And so instead of, uh, instead of riding on, uh, taking my car to our uh, D.C. headquarters, I would drive to the FDIC building in Arlington, Virginia, get parked there, get on the shot shuttle, FDIC shuttle to our D.C. building and talk to people on the bus. I would talk to people in the cafeteria. I would grab, grab my lunch tray and basically go to um, somebody's table and say, Tell me, tell me about your experience at the FDIC. And, you know, sometimes it took them about six minutes to realize, oh, my God, that's the chairman. <laughs> and there's such, such, a, such a thing about being the chairman of the FDIC. You know, I had to actually coax them to talk to me and say, listen, I don't care about your name. Just tell me, tell me about your experience. And so we've done a number of initiatives that we formalized in our strategic plan on diversity, equity, and inclusion, including how we hire people, how we promote people within the FDIC, what opportunities are given to people early on in their careers, making sure that our examiners travel less, that we can do more off-site work, so that, uh, that that mothers and fathers, in, in you know, while they're raising young ch young children, don't have to spend too much time on the road, because on average, our examiners used to spend about 88, 89 days on the road every year, mm. and that's really hard on if you have a young family. It's hard in general, but if you have a young family, that's even harder. And so we've done a number of these things that we are actually, frankly, very very proud of, and and you can go to our strategic plan on diversity, equity, and inclusion and uh, read more about mm -hmm. it. Well. Uh now, as we wind our conversation up, you, by the way, you must be, um, uh, I haven't done any data on this, but maybe the most well-traveled chairman in the history of the FDIC. You embarked upon a 50-state tour across the country, and even though these trips became virtual in our COVID times, um, you felt a need to get out of Washington. Uh, why, why is that? Because it's a big country. And we have 50 state regulators that we work with uh, on a very, um, um, I would say, diligent basis. We actually train more state examiners at the FDIC than we train our own because we train, train examiners for all 50 states. Mm. And so it was important for me to actually go on the ground, talk to those superintendents and commissioners for banking institutions in each state, speak to the bankers on the ground to understand what, what are they doing in their communities, <clears throat> excuse me, to understand what they're doing in their communities and to comprehend, you know, what's the local economy like? Are we appropriately looking at that economy as we think about regulation and supervision? And so before the pandemic, before the onset of the pandemic in 18 months, my first 18 months on the job, I was able to visit uh, about 30 states in person. We had 20 states left and uh, the pandemic uh, happened. And so we ended up doing the, the remaining states virtually. And that's one of my regrets for not having been able to do those last 20 states in person. Final message for not only the FDIC employee base, but to all those banks and bankers out there that the FDIC supervises. I will say that um, as I depart the FDIC, I have been surprised at the symbiotic nature that banks have with our communities. Uh, you know, quite often if you sit in Washington, D.C., it seems like it's, it's us versus them in everything, and especially in a, such a politically polarized world yep. that you just look through that lens at everything. And I realized, having visited 30 states in person and going to some small rural communities uh, and inner city banks, 
these bankers really actually care about their communities. They really want their communities to prosper, uh, and they want the these communities to grow. I will say the message to bankers is um, continue to manage your business as well. Understand that uh, the FDIC is in many ways uh, your partner in making sure that the banking system functions well and that we have a common interest, that is that they serve their customers and their communities and that we have been available uh, for technical support and other ways for them to continue doing so. I will say to consumers, my message is uh, consider ways in which you can become a more bankable consumer, and that quite often means getting your credit score up. We have a lot of educational resources in getting the United States. Getting banked. Getting banked, yes, get banked. We had a get, get banked uh, public campaign, advertising campaign, marketing campaign in Dallas and Atlanta, and now we're expanding it to other cities. You know, we have our Money Smart curricula where you can actually learn how to become smarter about money. I know it took me forever to learn how to look at the mortgage statement and understand what am I paying and why am I paying so much. Uh, and so there are resources to be used for people to become bankable and, re and and bankable in the best way in the United States. And I, again, use my own story of not being able to get a credit card. And one of my biggest successes in the United States, rising to have the 850 credit score. I, it doesn't happen all the time because it very uh, it, it varies, but I remember doing a, taking a screenshot of my credit score when it hit 850 and sending it to a few friends and saying, can you believe this? I actually have an 850 credit score. Forget all of my other successes. You know, forget being the FDIC chairman. I have 850. Didn't think that was possible. But what that means is that that little immigrant from 30 years ago who couldn't get a credit card and was cleaning houses now has every bank in the United States fighting for my business at favorable rates. And that's what we want for America. What's next? I don't know. So it's, a, it's an exciting, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a bittersweet goodbye, uh, mainly because I thought I would have a little bit more time to finish some of the important initiatives at the FDIC. But I feel good knowing that uh, we have been able to change the culture. And I think once you change the culture for better, there's no going back. So I feel like I'm leaving FDIC in a really good shape. From that perspective, I think we have moved the needle on innovation at the FDIC, and we have become one of the most proactive uh, and energized agencies when it came to innovation. I think we have been able to navigate through the pandemic really well with our financial institutions, making sure that they work with their customers. And so as I reflect upon all of that, um, I would say I'm a little bit tired, except that I'm like an energizer bunny. I just keep going, and, and I only know one gear, which is hustle. And so I, I don't know what's around the corner, but I can assure you that I will continue to work hard, whatever, whatever awaits me. Well, Madam Chairman, it is indeed bittersweet uh, that as we thank you for your frequent visits to the FDIC podcast, we also say bon voyage to you. Thank you for your service and all the best as you embark upon your next chapter. Thank you so much, Brian. And to you, I will say it's not a goodbye. It's a see you later. <laughs>